The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice, and he calls us to be people of justice, people who are just. If you would turn with me to Exodus 22, I want us to think about the question, what is justice? What is justice? As you're turning there, listen to Acts 23, where Paul is facing a Jewish justice system that was supposed to carry out the law of Exodus, but there were corrupt political leaders who had made false charges against Paul, and it was an unjust mistrial. And in Acts 23, Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler. Paul is quoting from our text in Exodus 22 as something that is directly applicable to a New Testament Christian The Old Testament law gave instructions for how to treat the accused, and it still applies in the New Testament, this passage. It is not justice to physically beat or otherwise mistreat a suspect, but it's also not right to speak evil of a ruler. Evil, sinful leaders in government, which Ananias was, are not to be reviled. They're not to be ridiculed by angry name-calling. And Paul got caught up in that moment and was guilty of that. We need to be careful not to be, get caught up in the moments. And even, I think even sometimes there's talk show hosts that are actually tempting you to speak evil of our rulers, whether in California or the capital of our nation. Paul confronted evil that men did, but he was convicted as he spoke evil. As he called him a whitewashed wall. We need to never do that, give in to insulting and derogatory nicknames like that. We can respectfully disagree, but we need to disagree in a respectful way. And I think that applies to what we forward by email and on social media and all those things. We live in a world, as we think of justice, as we come to our text, we live in a world of instant judgment, a world of trial by Twitter, and then people are, are, are tempted to just weigh in instantly and make judgments. And right away they see a clip and they know what justice is. But we have a higher standard as Christians. And we also need to not revile and rile up. We can get frustrated like Paul as we see things in our world that aren't right. But we need to remember what is written in God's law of love. And we're going to look at this section now. Exodus 22 verse 28. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. And the way Paul quotes this makes it clear. We're not just talking about curse words, and it can be translated leader. You shall not dishonor. You shall not treat lightly. Paul says you shall not speak evil of them. And then verse 29, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall eat any, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is God's word. Sojourners were, in that last verse, ethnic minorities originally from another land. But the key word in all this section here is the word justice. It's in verse 2, it's in verse 6. The New King James heading for chapter 23 is justice for all. Or if you have the ESV Bible with headings going back into chapter 22, this whole section it calls laws for social justice. And this text is applying God's justice to various social classes, various social situations. The Bible speaks to social issues, social ills, and social injustice. The God of justice cares for what is fair in social dealings more than any social movement. But I think you're also well aware justice and adjectives defining it have become buzzwords in our world. But justice is a biblical world, even as there's baggage added to those words. When some people speak of social justice, you might think of socialism or a social gospel liberal. I want to use a less loaded phrase today, societal justice, which I'm going to define as scriptural justice. But it's where we're thinking beyond ourselves, thinking about the world that we live in but also thinking about how Christians historically have led their societies against slavery, against poverty, for charity, and all kinds of causes and equality of ethnicities. It was often Christians leading the way in those causes. But what I want us to consider as we look at justice in God's Word, what it is, is what scriptural societal justice is not, and then what it is to live out this justice this justice of God, because justice and social justice has, has become political Play-Doh in our world. You know, Play-Doh is something that whoever has the Play-Doh in their hand can just fashion something and then present it to you. And, and that's what this has become. So abortion advocates, for example, refashion this word justice, and they talk about reproductive justice. And by that, they mean a woman having the right to decide to kill an innocent life in the womb, that that is just, and it's not just to restrict that. If you're against that, see, when they, when they form it that way and put it as justice, then if you're against that, you're against justice, they insist. And, and they're twisting what justice means. But that's a false charge, and that's not scriptural or societal Justice. God in Exodus 23, verse 6 says, Do not pervert, do not twist justice for anyone. People will pervert words like health care and freedom, and then they'll falsely charge anyone, any opposition to that as unjust. This is what our, is happening all around our world. But verse 7, chapter 23 says, Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent. That's how God defines justice. It's not twisting words or falsely charging others as unjust. There is a systemic injustice. There is a system that kills innocent life in the womb. And there is a great disparity. There is a great majority who are killed actually, and this is well documented, of the poor and of people of color in our land. There is an oppression of minorities and suppression of their lives that verse 9 also forbids. And, and like verse 8, politicians accept bribes from lobbies to continue to support things like that, and they are blinded when they accept bribes. God's justice says, Exodus 21 through 22, this whole section is about justice. 
and how it protects all life. It protects unborn life. We saw in chapter 21. It speaks true care of women. It speaks true freedom. God's true justice is not based on man's un man's changing opinions. It's based on God's unchanging word. And that's what we need to look at for justice. The world focuses on skin color and sex and sexual preference and pronouns. And to disagree with certain orientations is called injustice or prejudice nowadays. God in his word calls for a just society without discriminating, but that's different than than celebrating sin and calling that justice. So in, in our world, you're well aware, if you don't praise gay weddings or guys winning girls' sports, you are going to be called unjust. But biblical justice is not affirming wickedness or wokeness or whiteness as the bad guy, literally. Authentic justice is not about any political identity politics, categories, or political correctness, cancel culture, any of that. We cannot let the world define what justice is when they can't even define what a woman is. So Vody Bakum calls this justice an inigo Montoya word. You know, it's, it's that word that you, you keep using it, but you don't, it doesn't mean what you think it means. And he says there's two worldviews with this word. One is the critical social justice view from critical theory that the world is divided between the oppressors and the oppressed. And the other is what I will refer to as the biblical justice view. And so I want to start with that starting point of the oppressor-oppressed category at the foundation because the critical theories out there say if you're part of the oppressed category, you can't be an oppressor. But look at God's word here in verse 9 chapter 23, where he says, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And it wasn't that long ago that they were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the context. God is talking to Israelites who just a few months earlier were oppressed slaves in Egypt. It had been that way for 400 years. Years As evil and as oppressive as American slavery was 159 years ago in America, there's no denial of that evil. But, but don't forget, the Egyptians were throwing baby boys in the river who were alive just because they were Jewish. God hates injustice. God hated that kind of slavery and and segregation in history and sinful racism and oppression. God hates all of that, but his justice also warns those who have been sinfully oppressed in the past not to oppress others. And in verse 9, their Jewish ethnicity and their history did not permanently define their identity as oppressed. And it also didn't excuse reverse racism on their parts because remember this is months after their liberation they are now free of that oppression but there's going to be other people coming in to live among them that they need to treat differently than they had been treated to mistreat those other ethnicities those sojourners would be unjust no matter what mistreatment past groups had did to them And when we think of justice in our day, one of the words that's often used is reparations for what ancestors did years ago. So we think of the Native Americans and African Americans suffering, others in past centuries, and there's been horrible things actually all around the world to all kinds of different cultures and peoples have done horrible things in the past, and we can't deny that. But let's not remember, let's not forget Israel's ancestors slave traded, they committed genocide. Long before Egypt, Genesis 34, Genesis 37, the men of Israel murdered the men of Shechem and left only their women and children. But there wasn't an inherent and continual Jewish guilt in God's justice for that past generation's sins. And, And these Exodus slaves had been wronged by oppression. And what God is calling them to do is to move forward in a right Way. So look at chapter 22, verse 21. You 
shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God does make nations pay for sin. We see that through the prophets. We see that in Egypt. We can see that today. But his law is for individuals and it's for neighbors. Even as the Egyptians had wronged Egypt in the past, or wronged the Jews in the past, the Jews were not to wrong them back. So today there's a push for all taxpayers to pay reparations for the sins of of some forefathers. But in Exodus 22, in God's law, it is the criminal who pays the individual he wronged. And God's law also lays out that children are not to be punished or to pay or to be held accountable for the sins of their fathers. We need to understand real guilt is personal. It's not ancestral. You're not doomed from whatever happened in your family in the past. We can lament our nation's sins, but the gospel saves sinners, not systems. The gospel saves individuals, not institutions. And the more the gospel is at work in people's lives, the more throughout history we have seen good come in social areas. But restitution in Exodus 22, as we've seen, is criminal to hurt individuals. It's not by all for distant history. And there's another R word often associated with social justice today, and that's redistribution of possessions. So here's the United Nations. What does the world think? Literally, the United Nations, this is their statement, defines social justice as the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. Or in America, Random House Dictionary, social justice entry, the fair treatment of all people in a society, that's good, including equitable distribution of resources. There's that key word, distribution of resources among members of a community. Cambridge Dictionary from over in the UK adds the idea that wealth and resources should benefit everyone. Or on a popular level, Wikipedia, first sentence, social justice is justice in relation to a fair balance in the distribution of wealth, often including taxation to ensure distribution of wealth. So, so when you hear those words, people aren't mainly or only talking about discrimination. They're also talking about distribution by taxes, and they'll use the phrase economic justice if you hear that more and more. That's what they're talking about, taking from you to give to others. There's this scene in Disney's Robin Hood where Big John is sitting on a tree, and he's looking at Robin and says, are we the good guys or the bad guys? And he says, you know, you know Robin from some, given to others. And, and the fox says back to him, we never rob. We just borrow from some who can afford it a bit. And, and in, the, in that movie, the problem was unjust taxes. But in, in Marxism, unjust taxes is the solution, and in communist countries, and some here grew up in, the government took people's possessions, whether by oppressive, excessive overtaxing or taking what you own to the government in the name of justice for the poor. This is how it often works, but it never works as advertised. And it sounds encouraging, and, and people get excited when they hear some of the rhetoric, but it ends up enriching only a few. This is played out decade after decade around the world. And some of you grew up in lands where the government owned all the property. But biblical justice is based on private property that you own and that you work for. Personal ownership and property rights are here as well. Look at chapter 22, verse 5. In another man's field... He shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. And then verse 11 is going to go on to mention his neighbor's property and the owner. And verse 14 mentions anything belonging to your neighbor. In chapter 20, the the eighth commandment is you shall not steal. But the tenth is you shall not covet. And it goes through a list of anything belonging to your neighbor. We're not to covet what belongs to our neighbor, riches or anything they have. Wanting that to be 
given to you. It is unjust for government to steal according to God's law, but it's also unbiblical for us to covet and to want to just get things that aren't ours that we haven't worked for. But we need to also recognize the poor need help, and God's law is very clear about that. And verse 25 talks about giving them no interest loans for basic and and business. And those who have been blessed are to offer work. Chapter 23, verse 11 is going to talk about them and their fields to leave extra for the poor to work fields. That is a good thing for God's people to do. But government people taking it often isn't good. But there is a workfare system, a workforce system in Scripture that has much better fruit than the modern welfare system. When the state takes over charity and forcibly sharing, it often helps politicians more than the poor. There's a lot more we could look at for helping the poor. There's actually going to be more in the next section of Exodus 23. But when a nation totally takes over what should be individuals' roles, it tends to become totalitarian rule. And it's not long before the oppressor is identified as a conservative Christian, as a colonizer, and the rights of animals or even the atmosphere become justice issues. Here's what our president said. We have put environmental justice, there's that buzzword again, environmental justice at the center of what we do. And then they define our White House does just injustice as disproportionate impacts from climate change pollution. You see how this, the Plato can just t- be re- reformed. And it's being reformed even in the Middle East as well. And if some of that is hard to understand, I think it just proves Proverbs 28 verse 5. Evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And so that's where we want to go for the rest of this message. The world does not understand justice, even as it uses that word confidently. We need to seek the Lord so that we can understand it completely. So what is it to live out God's justice? We'll look at chapter 23, verse 6. You shall not pervert the justice do. And the context here is mentioning poor people in court, but it also applies to all people in context. The word justice here in, in verse 6, the Hebrew word is mishpat. It means judge, justice, judgment. It means measure. We think of the idea of the measures, the scales of justice. You've heard that, that they're to be balanced. Scripture repeatedly talks about equal weights and measures. And The prophets would rebuke people who would have uneven measures where they would sometimes weight one side of the scale for their benefit. We're never to do that. Jeremiah 7 verse 5, truly execute justice one with another. So this is one of the one another's of of scripture. We need to truly execute justice. And because it says truly, there are untrue ways to do that. There's a type of justice that is not true But God doesn't just desire things to be just. He requires us to do justly. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love kindness or, or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Some of you can think of a song. Uh, he has shown you what this is. Oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require? And it starts off with justice, doing justly, as well as loving kindness and mercy. That's not just in the law and the prophets. Jesus also rebuked in one of his harshest rebukes those who were religious people, but he says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So what's the more important weightier matters of the law? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's the weightier aspects of the law. They were so caught up in the minutia and they were missing the, the major weight and emphasis of God's entire law and will for us. And that's to do justice, to not neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. So what is it? 
to do justice. It was interesting to look at some older dictionaries. They, they would say things like this. Justice involves observance of the divine law. Righteousness. So righteousness and justice are often used interchangeably in Scripture and even in older English. Righteousness, moral right, is part of the Oxford English Dictionary definition of how that word was used in past centuries. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail said this, Just law squares with the moral law or law of God. And that would certainly include not unjustly judging others by the color of their skin rather than their character. But here's number one. I think we need to look beyond just a person's character to God's character. This is where it starts. Number one, justice is about God and his character. I want to start where we started reading Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God. And right before that, God said, I am compassionate. That's his character. He's compassionate. He cares for all people. And we're to care for all people. And God says in that verse right before, he hears the cries of injustice and he is gracious. God hears. God cares. And this God of justice and mercy calls his people to to do justly and to love kindness or mercy. And it's about God's image in fellow human beings. If you don't have this in your mind, God's image You're going to miss how the Bible begins because it's about we're made in God's image. That's why we're not to harm other fellow human beings. James 3, 9 says we're not to speak evil of other human beings because they're made in God's image. It's about God's image in fellow human beings, and it's about God's word. So don't just think of man's causes. Think of God's character above all that as the standard. His word is what defines Justice. We need to have discernment about this. We need to look at his word and not just what the world says. Here's a testimony of John Perkins. He says, I was born on a Mississippi cotton plantation in 1930. As a civil rights activist, I was jailed and beaten nearly to death by police. They tortured me without mercy. I have known injustice, and it would have been the easiest thing in the world for me to answer hate with hate. But God had another plan for my life, a redemptive plan. Jesus saved me. And he says, it's by that grace that has transformed me that, I, that he says I, he spent the last 60 years of his life confronting injustice. And he says he tells younger justice seekers, you need to first start with God. Because God is bigger than we can imagine. We have to align ourselves with his purpose, his will, his mission to As the prophet Amos said, let justice roll down as a river and to bring forgiveness and love to this world. The problem of injustice is a God-sized problem. All around the world today, there's all kinds of injustice happening. But he says, if we don't start with him first, whatever we are seeking, it ain't justice. I think he's right. God is a God of justice. That's where we started. And we need to reflect his character. God in his gospel has the deep and lasting answers to the deep struggles that people have. The answer is not in the government, it's in the gospel. But we're not to revile our government leaders, as verse 28 goes on to say. God has put those authorities in place. Paul says we're to honor them, not speak evil of them. I think some ways people say, you know, it's all rigged, it's all racist to curse or to call for the, the defunding of those authorities is the opposite of God's justice. But this is where people have literally hijacked justice. It's like they've crashed it into burning buildings. And people in the name of justice actually were burning Buildings not that long ago, the right starting point for us as God's people is to ask, how can I reflect God's character in my relations and the people I work with, is when those I interact with in the world, how can I reflect God? How can I treat God's image bearer justly? How can I treat him kindly? 
as God has treated me. And part of putting him first at the end of chapter 22 is putting God first and giving him the first fruits of his provision. There's a, a dietary law there in verse 31 of unclean animals, but in verse 30 there's a law to give firstborn animals back, and, and we don't do that with animals today, but we are also to not delay giving to the Lord from what he has given to us. Our offerings look different, but giving the first and best portion to God honors him when when money comes in or resources come in to, to give that first and best percent to God, not just later leftovers, whatever's there at the end of the month. And verse 29 ends with God first in Israel's firstborn sons that were to be dedicated to him. And certainly as parents, we want to dedicate our children as well, even though we don't go through some of the same rituals they did. There's this concept here is when you become a parent, you need to give that to God. We need to hold our children before the Lord because they are his and we have them for a time but they're his and we want to pray for their pray for them dedicate them to him but we need to start with God and his character and then number 2 don't spread or join in false justice don't spread lies chapter 23 verse 1 you shall not spread a false report you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. We need to be careful what we join up with, whether it's joining hands literally or or hashtags, even with organizations that may be wicked. And so I think even as we, our day and age, there's a temptation that they didn't have, and that's you get something on social media, and you you like the message, but you don't know where it's from or even if it's all true, but you share it to others what may not be true. That's a way that we can spread false reports. Sometimes we can just stir up controversy rather than making Christ the offense. And, and I think in politics we see true justice overlooked. Right? We're going to see more and more this year ads spreading malicious reports of the other opponent politically. But, but we need to be, as Christians, not be like that. And we need to also not blindly follow the crowd or just go with the mob like the end of verse 2, and it says, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. That's wrong for us to do. Just go with the flow. Go with the pressure. Go with the crowd, the majority. And, and this context is talking about court. But this also could apply to the court of public opinion. There's a tremendous pressure when it seems like everyone else except for you and your place of school or work or family hold the convictions that you do but we need to not be swayed by the many where God has clearly spoken. I mean, we see this in pro sports. There's peer pressure in society, schools, secular workplaces. You know the acronyms, LGBTQ. Some of your jobs have DEI, trainings, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are good-sounding words. And, and there's some good in that. In fact, in verse 9, God wants an inclusion of a diversity of sojourners with Israel to be treated equitably. But again, there's where those words where when people start talking about religious inclusivity, that's a different matter. It's one thing to treat all people right. It's another thing to say all faiths are right. And that's more and more what the world wants us to say. Marriage equality is not an area to have a diversity of views. And we're going to see more and more our society, even though it talks about inclusion, does not have inclusion for our exclusive gospel. We need to prepare ourselves for that as the pressure mounts that we're not going to go with the many. And in our world of fake news, we need to speak more of the good news. We need to speak truth in love. We need to have courage and conviction, but we also need to have compassion for sinners. And, and many of us err on one side or the other, but we need both. We need to have courage to stand against the pressure, but we also need to have compassion for sinners and seek to make that clear with people we know. And that leads me to number three, which is 
love your enemies by fairness and kindness. Love your enemies by fairness and kindness. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You shall rescue it with him. Now, we're not excused from the principle of this just if we don't see oxen and donkeys around our community because there's a principle here. And I think this is really when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus isn't making up something that God had never said before. This is one of those places that Jesus understanding the law understands that this is talking about actually showing love to your enemies, doing justly and loving kindness by loving your enemies and by treating them fairly. And even you could think of representing them fairly, representing someone who opposes you, representing what they say fairly. But this is speaking of, I mean, think of the Good Samaritan story. Remember the guy who showed mercy to a down-and-out Jewish enemy? That's the context. Samaritans and Jews were enemies. And it's the Samaritan, not the religious Jewish leaders, who comes to this Jewish man. The guy's literally down-and-out. He is hurt. He can't get up. And it's this Samaritan, which he hated culturally, saw him, rescued him, didn't leave him there. Just like this passage, he lifted him up. He carried his burdens. He, he rescued him. He brought him back on his donkey. Jesus uses this kind of imagery to say that's what loving your neighbor looks like. Go and do likewise. Do good to your enemies. Jesus said, help them. Help those who hate you. Help them who hate you. Love your enemies. And we need to think about that. Are, are we making that clear? Are, are we seeking to sh- show that kind of love in ways that would never be expected by the world? Love your enemies by fairness and kindness. And then fourthly, number four, show no partiality or favoritism. Show no partiality or favoritism. Verse six, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. We know that all around the world that that is happening today. The rich often receive partiality. But notice verse 3 also adds, verse 3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So you're not to pervert justice against the poor man, but you're also not to be partial to the poor man. It's not just the rich who aren't to receive favoritism and favors. You're not to show favoritism to any class of people even the less fortunate. One class of people are not to have a legal leg up on others based on money or ethnicity. We're talking about in the court and justice system here. Scriptural justice doesn't let someone win just because they're a woman or a minority or any other category. There's not to be favoritism just because someone is black or just because someone is white or any other shade. There's no preferential treatment or prejudice that should be based by externals and the administration of justice. And the context here is the right to a fair trial, but also fair treatment in general by way of application is what God wants his people to live out. So God is no respecter of persons. And God says things like this, do not judge by appearances. That's John 7, 24. And regard no one according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5 16. You guys have seen the statues of Lady Justice? What is Lady Justice in the statue? She's holding the measures. What does she have on her face? A blindfold, right? So the blindfold is to represent as as she weighs justice of the two cases here. She's blind to what they look like. She's blind to whatever money they would be holding up or, or that they don't have. In Exodus 23, verse 8 says, bribes blind, but In another sense, justice is to be blind to money you have or don't have or to weigh things not by sight. So whether someone is small in the eyes of society or a great celebrity, 
or an immigrant, as he's going to talk about now. We need to be impartial. God's law says later in Deuteronomy 1.16, whether it's a fellow countryman or a foreigner, judge righteously. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And he goes on to say from that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment that sums it all up. And that's what comes right before it. Don't be partial. Don't be unjust to the poor or to the great. In righteousness you are to judge That's the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor. It sums up the law, sums up our study. But I need to step back from the text now and ask myself and ask you some questions. Do you love, think about someone who's your enemy, someone who hates you. Have you ever shown love to them? Who is it that maybe is coming to your mind right now? Is there a way that you can surprise them because of your understanding of God and his word by showing kindness to them? Is there a way you can actually help someone who has not helped you at all? Is there a way that you can fulfill that principle? Do you need to treat with more kindness those you disagree with? How are you doing just being a a gracious person, kindness? How would, how would others describe how you relate? That person is gracious. They're kind in the way they speak, those they disagree with. Are you fair in how you represent others who aren't there and what they said? If not, how can you do that soon? Whatever the Lord is speaking to you from these principles. Think about, are you partial in any way? And, and a lot of us aren't sitting in a court. You know, some of you may have jury duty come up, and these are things you need to think about. But the principles here are being laid out for the society of God's people as well. Are you partial? Think about even people that you, even here at, at church, are you partial to some over others? Who can you show kindness to that you might not normally? Who can you even talk to? after the service that you might not normally because you don't want to neglect any people. Who might you be tempted to judge by appearances? I, I know this is something I really struggled with as a, as a young man, just judging people by how they looked, something I still have to fight. We're not to judge by appearances or fleshly categories or to, to write someone off or to conclude something about someone because of what they said or did or how they came across. They're made in God's image. And, and if they're a believer, they are in Christ just like us. We're going to be spending eternity with them. We need to think not in fleshly categories, but in Christ. And if you are convicted, you might show favoritism in some ways or play favorites in some way. Pray for grace to change. Remember, grace is unmerited favor that you've received. So think of that. Next time you're tempted to quick judgments, you see something on on news media, you see a little clip, social media, and you just want to jump in with, with judgment. That's not justice. That's not doing justly. Loving kindness. Sometimes we don't need to comment or say something. I mean, that could, that could be a help for, for some of you. Just, we don't always need to, we need to be slow to speak, quick to hear, quick to understand, and not quick to just share what we're thinking. And if you speak evil of your rulers and government, stop yourself by Scripture, like Paul did. Don't excuse it, like Paul did. Yeah, it's written. I need to not speak evil of a ruler. Learn from Isaiah 117. Learn to do good. This was our scripture reading earlier. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Advocate for her. 
do what's right for to help someone. Maybe it's a struggling person. Maybe it's a single mom with fatherless kids. Maybe there's just something you see that's not right that you can help in some way. Or maybe you see something wrong happening that you can stop in some way. Justice is something we have to seek and learn to do good, to do justly, and to love mercy. I think God has hardwired justice into us. I mean, mean, you who have little kids know that when kids sense there's an injustice between them and a sibling, they vocalize that, don't they? But we've got to moderate that by scripture. and, And we don't instinctively understand justice always rightly. We all fall short of this standard. And we need to also notice the end of Exodus 23, verse 7. God says, I will not acquit the wicked. Or another translation, I will not justify the guilty. He's going to say later in Exodus 34, I will by no means clear the guilty. And when you let that actually hit you, you know, we can, we can go on all these causes for justice, but what about our crimes against God? What about justice for that? When God says he will not justify the guilty, he will not by any means clear the guilty, he will not acquit the sinner. This is a problem for us because we've got sin and wickedness in our hearts, in our lives. We're all sinful. We're all guilty. How can God... In in light of statements like this, acquit and clear us guilty sinners. How can he justify us when that would be unjust? Well, the answer is Jesus came and he took the just punishment for sin, for my sin, and for all who would believe in him, all the, the justice that was due and deserved on the cross for our guilt. Romans 3.25, he did this to demonstrate his justice, God did, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that God can be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God can uphold justice on the one hand, at the same time as he can justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus, the the ruler, he actually is the ruler of all people as God, but they reviled him. They spoke evil of him. They cursed him to his face. They spread false reports about him. Their malicious witnesses perverted justice And Jesus suffered the greatest injustice ever. Jesus can fully sympathize with any injustice you face. But more than that, Jesus lived justly and perfectly. And he fulfilled all righteousness, all the demands of justice in God's law. So that he can actually impute credit, his life, to believers. So that they can actually be counted righteous in Christ. God as judge can justify, that means declare righteous based on Christ taking our guilt upon himself and paying the full penalty due of justice for that on the cross. And then Christ in exchange giving us his real righteousness so that God can look at us and he can see the righteousness of Christ. And so justice and mercy come together and kiss, if you will, at the cross. And so this is number five. The gospel is the answer to injustice. Number five, the gospel is the answer to an injustice. It's what Jesus did that is the answer. What Jesus did and what he went through was, was horrible. Judas actually literally joined hands with wicked men in that story. He, he went and many of them went along with the mob crucify him, crucify him. They got stirred up and they just went along and they were chanting it with him. And there was an unjust trial with false reports and false charges. And there were bribed leaders, literally, that were blind to what was right. And Jesus, to fulfill the prophet, was oppressed. And yet he did not open his mouth. He kept showing kindness to his enemies, even while he's on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. Those ones who hated him, he loved his enemies, and we were by nature his enemies. We were going astray, but he didn't leave us. He didn't leave us down there on our, under our burden. He didn't leave us lying there. He came to us, and he rescued us. He picked us up. He gathered us up. He brought us back, and he carries our 
burdens. This is what Jesus did. The one who was, like verse 7, falsely accused. They killed the righteous and innocent one, just like that text says not to do. They broke the law, but all of us do. And Jesus fulfilled the law in our place. In the place of the guilty, condemned he stood. He lived that perfect righteous life. And he lived a full life. He lived in a poor village under an oppressive, racist, Roman ruling class. And whatever injustice, whatever indignity people face in this life, Jesus faced it worse. And Jesus has forgiving grace no matter how hurtful things have been in your past, whether abuse or other horrible things in your past, Jesus knows, Jesus cares, Jesus in his first sermon offers freedom to those who have been hurt, freedom for those who are to the the poor, but even the, the spiritually downtrodden or others who have had terrible things happen in their past. Jesus in Luke 4 proclaims to the, the, the suffering people the liberty that he has come, the favorable year of the Lord. He lived that life for us. He's a sympathetic high priest, and he was executed by the wealthy, but he rose again so that all who repent and trust in him can receive the riches of his grace. And he is coming again. And he's coming again to right all wrongs. He's coming again to set up perfect justice in a renewed earth. But until then, he calls us to pursue justice, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, to learn to do good, to seek to be just people. And may God help us to do that as we long for that day when he himself will come. Amen. Amen. Let's pray for his help. Our great God, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ. Lord, what a, a blessing to know that, that Jesus fulfilled the law for us, but also that he changes our hearts to, in his law of love and helps us to love people that we never would naturally. I pray, Lord, that you would help people in their hearts who have, who have suffered difficult things in their, in their past, Lord, to be able to give them to Jesus knowing that even if no one else fully understands that Jesus does and cares and that he intercedes for his people, I pray for any who are not yet his people, Lord, that they would look to the merciful Savior and that they would seek your mercy before that day of justice comes. We pray this for the glory of our reigning and returning King. Amen.